All right, let's uh, let's go on to the next one. I think it's my turn to read again. Yeah. This is point eight. We are saddened by all the expressions, by all expressions of sexual behavior, including pornography, polygamy, and promiscuity that do not recognize the sacred worth of each individual or that seek to exploit, abuse, objectify, or degrade others or that represent less than God's intentional design for his children. While affirming a scriptural view of sexuality and gender, we welcome all to experience the redemptive grace of Jesus and are committed I think the key word there was all. We welcome all to experience the redemptive grace of Jesus and are committed to being a safe place of refuge, hospitality, and healing for any who may have experienced brokenness in their sexual lives. So that's making clear we're not the anti-LGBTQ church. If people have identified in one way or another anywhere on the rainbow spectrum, they they may come as well. We are going to articulate a biblical view yeah, of sexuality. They're welcome to come and be redeemed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. So the scriptural citations, there are two on this page. I think there are probably more. Uh, Genesis one twenty seven. so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Both of these have already been cited as proof texts in previous uh, ones before. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so this is, all, is rebuking not just homosexuality, but also the transsexual phenomenon. God made males and females, mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that. So mm-hmm. it's, it's God's good design, and your job is not to buck that, but to accept that and to receive blessing in that. Yeah. Anything else? Um, why don't you read... Why don't you read the other scriptures and then uh, comment? Okay. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the, in the same name, okay, sorry, some of the letters are cut off, so we're just trying to guess, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality." Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Um, I think it's a great scripture. I think that's a very important scripture to include in, right. in questions of sexual morality. Uh, could you go back to the slide before where I can see the state statement better? Thank you. 
Um, so yeah, I think these are all scriptures. In fact, you know, the the two Genesis quotes are the ones that Jesus quotes when he's giving his answer about marriage and divorce mm-hmm. uh, that right. we just read earlier. Um, so yes, I think these are essential about what we affirm as Christians and the very definition and foundation of what what sexual relations are about and uh, what's allowed. The second half of the statement I like, I think it's good, of course, um, I want the church to be a safe place and refuge and hospitality for people who have struggled with sexual uh, sin or temptation. Uh, but there's a good deal of language at the beginning that I thought the the list of pornography, polygamy, and promiscuity, you know, they're going for the alliteration, and promiscuity is a pretty a big umbrella term that, through a Christian lens, I think can include things like same-sex uh, activity and, and other things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think some of the language is either unnecessary or kind of confusing, you know, like, that do not recognize the sacred worth of each individual or seek to exploit. I mean, yes, I don't want anybody to do anything that's seeking to exploit, but why not just say that exploits? Like, uh, you might not intend to, but you might be exploiting somebody. So just, you know, there's there's uh, people's intentions, and then there's also reality. Um, and so I, I guess that's me being a little bit nitpicky. But then it says, uh, or that represent less than God's intentional design for his children. You know, call me triggered, but uh, <laughs> there's a little bit of... Uh, I feel like I've 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 watched a lot of evangelical Christians in their trying to figure out where to land about sexuality and especially same sex activity, mm-hmm. who have used the language of it's not, um, you know, something like it's not the fullness of what God intends, yeah. or it's not, and and so it seems to be kind the of the implication allowing, being like, what what you're doing is okay, but it can be so much better. Let me tell or, you about the better, and it's it, not enough. Right. It's it's less than God's best for you, and we yeah. want the best for you. No, it's sin, and don't do it. You yeah. know, like, this isn't a question of degrees. It's you could be destroying yourself, and as the next scripture makes yes. abundantly clear, it can land you in hell. So please, we love you. Don't consider this less than the best. It's bad. Yeah. And so I, I'm not a fan of that language. I think it's... Unta- it, I mean, I, I get it, but it's just... Uh, I, I, I doubt they meant to leave room for that, whoever authored this. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's kind of weak sauce, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of, that's the situation I think the GMC is in broadly, is how strongly are we going to speak knowing that, that it's going to turn some people off and they're going right. to leave or not join, you know? So it's... It's a line that every denomination, every individual believer has to walk, but whenever we're dealing with, we're going to take a, a social witness stand, but mm-hmm. then we use kind of milk taste, or milk toast, or uh, you said uh, weak, weak sauce. sauce. Yeah, if you're going to use weak sauce theological language, mm-hmm. then do you really need to say it? You know, right. if, if people can wiggle out of it, that, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think you're right to pick on that. All right, anything else to uh, say about any of this before we go on to point nine? I don't think so. Okay. So I think, whose turn is it? Caroline? Okay, yeah, go on. We believe that children, whether through birth or adoption, are a sacred gift to us from God, and we accept our responsibility to both protect and nurture the youngest among us, particularly against such abuses as enforced child labor, involuntary conscription, human trafficking, and other such practices in the world. Uh, the first scripture from Deuteronomy 4, verses 9 through 10, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, 
how on that on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their uh, children so. And then uh, Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is a man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I got mostly good things to say about that. Yeah, I like I like a lot that's going on here. Yeah, I wish they'd been a little bit more explicit about uh, protecting children from grooming. I know that's kind of like a contemporary issue, but like when you see it now, you realize it's always been going on. And protecting the innocence of children is is I mean, if we're going to have one just dedicated to children, it, it would be nice if if they mm. said something about that child labor. I mean, yeah, in a global church, that is going to be something. Mm-hmm. In America, it's not really a thing at this point, but but globally, I'm sure it is. Involuntary conscription, that also seems like something from a previous era, but... I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm not even trying to... Is that in reference to military Yeah, military yeah, conscription, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. And then, but I, I, I think... So there's this book I've been... I bought, I've been meaning to read called Them Before Us, and these two women wrote it, um, one of whom was a scholar, but the notion being that the thing that's killing the West is that adults are pri- prioritizing themselves over children, yes. and as is evidenced in numerous ways. And that shows it's that's not just bad for children, but it's bad for us because our lives yes. are meant to directionally at a certain point turn towards caring for others. And so that's and and I love that it's not just uh, by our biological children, but they talk about the importance of adoption and the legitimacy of uh, childhood adoption. And that's something that the Fugates talked about. That's something that I know you've looked at, our household has looked at. And I think we need to do more to legitimate and valorize even adopting because we live in a country, in a world right now, where there are so many orphans that people don't want. They would rather have their own. They'd rather spend so much money for artificial insemination, or I think they call it something. No, it's, what do they... They call it where you go in and you take some eggs and some sperm. And In you, vitro fertilization. There it is. They'd rather spend thousands on that than thousands on uh, adopting a child who's already alive and, and needs mm-hmm. love. And so I kind of wish that they had been a little stronger in their advocacy mm-hmm. for adoption. Um, and then I just kind of laughed at the psalm reference because that is associated with the Quiverful Movement which um, is people having as many babies as they possibly can and women like having 12, 15 mm-hmm. babies if they can. And there are a lot of people who find that heinous, but that's that's the proof text they usually that's use. Funny. It's called the quiverful because blessed is the man yes, who fills quiverful. his quiver mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm. And then in, in Deuteronomy, it, I, I think it's laudable to talk about how important it is to indoctrinate your children. Mm-hmm. It's not a loving thing to go, oh, they'll figure it out. They should do what they want. No. You raise them in the faith. Right, right. I, yeah, I, I love, you know, because at first, uh, even though I read this as, as we were starting this out, I was thinking, didn't we already, you know, kind of establish where we stand on abortion? And, mm-hmm. but I love this because it is, it's, it's more all encompassing of the value of children, right? Generally speaking. And I think in the West, we have become incredibly hostile to children. They're just one big obstacle to me living my life. And that's why. Um, I think foster care and, and adoption are such a thing is because a lot of parents don't want to raise their children because it's hard and they don't want to spend time with their children. They get home and their children, you know, 
send them to be on their device rather than sit around the table or give them attention. Oh. And um, I, I think, and I don't think it's just a modern thing. You know, like Malachi's prophecy about the day of the Lord, uh, that beautiful scripture about uh, the, the hearts of fathers being turned to their children. Oh, sure. Uh, humans have always wanted to look at children as a nuisance and something that is not valuable. And I love how affirming our, our, our holy scriptures are about well, they the value are a of nuisance. children. Let's be clear. <laughs> children are a nuisance. I afford uh-huh. them, but they're also made in God's image, uh-huh. and they are worthy of love and dignity. And it's just right. such a sad place to be in where like, people will openly disrespect children as a whole category, not mm-hmm. realizing... Um, you know, I never want to fetishize children or like they're they're mm-hmm. wonderful. You know, kids say the darndest sure, sure, things, sure. but uh, they're very much needed, not just for the propagation of the species. Who cares about that? Our our lives are meant to serve others and build mm-hmm. up others and and edify yeah. and and just like we have the statement of nurturing the mm-hmm. earth, even more important than that is nurturing other humans that that yes. God gives us stewardship. Our lives over. are meant to be. Uh, poured out for others, and <clears throat> it's become far too common, even within conservative circles, to um, keep tight controls on, uh, you know, like being a young couple and enjoying our time as a young couple. And I don't know, I'm going a little off script here, I think, but but <clears throat> employing all the the means of birth control that that we can stomach to ensure that we get to be a young couple that gets to do what we want for as long as we want until we decide we're ready to have children because children once to come in the picture are going to kind of ruin our 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 whole free life thing and uh, children have si- kind of especially since a sexually re- sexual revolution just become a threat to our autonomy and our mm-hmm. ability to do what we want and so you end up with people who've who've been married and been living together for years and years and years and could be having children but are resisting it yeah. for the sake of their own freedom and autonomy. And uh, that's just, I think, often when you have the ability to, uh, uh, that is a selfish decision instead yeah, of pouring well, yourself it, out. And to, to be very clear, uh, I appreciated that First Corinthians reference, chapter 6, that they had earlier. You were bought at a price. Your body is not your own. Uh, life is not about pursuit of pleasure or doing things on your own terms. Once you understand yourself to be a slave bought on the slave market by your loving master, Christ Jesus, mm-hmm. your body is not your own. Your life is now about him and his business, which is care of the orphan, redeeming of children, right. blessing this world. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. Even within conservative circles, there are a lot of people who've lost sight of this mm-hmm. and think that the early years of marriage are about them yeah. or that you got to have these young years to right. sow your wild oats. And that is not something, not only is that not something that we're entitled to, but that's something that actively infantilizes us mm-hmm. and keeps us from growing yep. as Christ has intended and designated for us. Or also, and I know we need to move on, uh, making women choose between a career and, and children or, or uh, children being a threat to a woman pursuing a career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so... Uh, a ton of conservative families and and women guilty of that of choosing a career over the possibility of having children. Yeah. And 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 I think in in it, I want to allow for circumstances people don't have control over and and heartbreaking circumstances, but to just say I'm not ready to have children. I really want to pursue a career for five or ten years first, and then maybe I'll get around to have ch- having children. I think uh, indirectly treats children hot uh, in in almost in a hostile way. Like, right. Um, Turns they, out that was another scripture for us to read about children. Uh, oh, okay. But if a widow 
has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Why do you think they included this one in the children uh, stance? I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, the widows are supposed to have uh, shown godliness to their own household, and and um, here it's and to make some return to their parents, right? But the widows, I think, are. But if a widow has children, yeah, here it's talking about children taking care of the widows, so it's kind of going the other direction. I kind of wondered if the implication here was, if you want to get taken care of later in life, you take care of your kids now. <laughs> yeah, that could work. <laughs> I, I, I neglected to say that, that it came from 1 Timothy chapter 5, it was uh, verses 4, 8, and 16. So yeah, just the notion being <clears throat> that, that we're all connected, that households and families are a real thing and that children are a vital part of that, if not in the present. Well, I mean, even in the present they are, but even if they don't produce anything in the present, uh, they do in the future. They, they care for you. Yeah, and, and in some cases, this, I think there's some scripture here in between the verses that they skipped that talks about kind of the standards of righteousness expected of the widow themselves, who've right. washed yep. the feet of, of, the, of the saints and, and other things like that. And so I would think maybe part of it is like, if the widow is righteous and has been done well in taking care of her own family and, and doing things like right. that, then they can be on the widow list, and yeah. then you know they need to be taken care of if their own children can't take care of them. Yes, you know. So I would have thought they could have pulled on that, but anyways, yeah. Well, I read that last scripture, so why don't you introduce uh, point ten? We believe that followers of God have been called to exercise self-control and holiness in their uh, personal lives generosity and kindness in their relationships, relations with others, and grace in all matters of life. It's kind of just a statement about holiness. and holiness. Mm -hmm. And personal lives, yeah, not mm -hmm. just systems. And Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the first scripture comes from Romans 12, 9 through 21. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be reverent, fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, the next one is Galatians 5, 22 through 30, uh, 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
this one's just kind of fascinating to me because it's kind of just a statement about holiness. And that's not necessarily a social position. I mean, yes, it's it's our witness to the world, mm-hmm. but I don't know, just kind of seems interesting in this mix of social statements. Yeah. Yeah, so the holiness thing, um, I remember I I uh, did an interview with a guy named Absalom Nuhu, who's from the UMC in Nigeria. Yeah, he's all said, about the holiness. Yeah, I said, what 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 is so particular about the Wesleyan tradition that y'all love? And he said, holiness. You know, mm-hmm. so I I think that that was core and key with Methodism from the very beginning, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's totally right to capitalize yeah. on it for sure. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it being here. Put it everywhere you want. Like, yeah, we're all about holiness. Absolutely, it's part of our social witness. Yeah. <clears throat> Anything else to be said about that one? Nah. All right. Uh, I think it's my turn to read, isn't yeah. it? Okay. Uh, point 11, we believe in the rule of justice and law in society. I think they said that for the Reagan conservatives, uh, Nixon conservatives. In the, in the right of individuals to follow God's call and to lawfully immigrate to new places. Okay, they put that for the Democrats, I guess. <laughs> and in the pursuit of peace, both between nations and individuals. Okay. We offer ourselves to work in order to reduce the bitterness that has overflowed in God's world. Okay, there's a lot there. Uh, we'll try and hold on to all of it. The first citation is Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Next citation is 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Okay, I see the themes there being very clear. The next one is kind of a lengthy one from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. Therefore, remember that at one time you gentle... Okay, so first off, there was a typo on this one. It made no sense. Mm-hmm. So I think this is the section that we're talking about, but okay. I, I'm not for sure which one. That, okay, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made of the flesh by hands, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by 
of the Spirit. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. I'm pretty sure that is the one. I think that's the, it, it directly corresponds. I'm seeing the theme now of trying to create a world in which uh, national and ethnic boundaries do not divide people unnecessarily. Right. And so kind of creating a colorblind future. Um, I, I jokingly uh, said that they put that part about immigration in there for Democrats, <clears throat> but they had the word lawful in there. And I think that's for people who, it, I mean, it's definitely uh, an issue today, immigration. Uh, but the, the larger thing just being, what are we doing about discord between people groups? Are we called to do anything about that as believers? And the answer is, yeah, we're called to be peacemakers. Right. Anything else to this one that you saw? No, no. I think it's fine. The the bit about Abram, the the citation with Abram was just to say, hey, he was a sojourner, he was an immigrant. He was an immigrant. Go easy yeah. on the immigrants. Yeah. Well, and you know, they could have pulled on a number of things. I think it's fair to point out that God's people have had to move to different lands and societies uh, multiple times, and uh, they were once strangers, and they needed to be treated with kindness. And so, when God tells Israel about how to treat people of other nations, he says, you were once strangers in a foreign land. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, so you're expected to kind of be able to be compassionate with other people. So all fair points, I think. Oh, look, here's another scripture for you to read. This is huh. undealing with the same one dealing with peace among people groups. Uh, Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf, fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." So there you see uh, both kind of the peace imagery, um, and then you also see imagery of uh, uh, the coming Messiah establishing justice by the rod of his mouth and uh, judging with righteousness, judging the poor. And um, so I, I think you can see stuff that could point to the rule of justice and law. And uh, Well, the part that concerns me is this Isaiah passage is about the coming kingdom when mm -hmm. the very nature of animals is undone right. and there is no violence or destruction and that's not the realm of history that we're living in right now we live in a time in which there is endemic sin and suffering and uh the concern i have here is the same with the language about ending the sin of racism or whatever there are certain things that are just not going to happen until christ comes mm -hmm. again in glory where if we uh, run too far with thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven if we try and put the cart before the horse and make the kingdom come. This is, I talked with TJ about this in last week's segment. There was some stuff in the doctrinal section indicating to me 
this kind of modernist notion mm-hmm. that we're going to build the kingdom here. And I, I'm really concerned about that theological worldview being too powerful here. So it's one thing for us to say we will advocate for peace. It's another thing to say it's our expectation that we're going to create the kingdom of God here on earth. Yeah, well, and the use of the words uh, rule of justice and law in society does, I think, kind of lean in an, toward an interpretation of, at the very least, advocacy, if not like trying to get laws and governments to conform to our worldview. Right. Um, but, you know, uh, I'm not going to go that direction. I would hope that there's a way to interpret that <clears throat> that scripture um, more more in, in, in terms of, you know, we as the eschatological people of God are living in such a way consonant with that coming kingdom that is not yet now in the world's stained and sin as it is. So, you know, if if it was just kind of pointing to our role as the church, as individuals or as the church, yeah, yeah, to to be a place of refuge for the immigrant or for the stranger, to be peacemakers between nations, and yeah. you know, would I love it if the church in Ukraine and Russia could show stronger unity with one another than their nationalities? Yes, without knowing much of the situation. Right. Um, but it, but if the assumption behind that statement is more of like a, a socio political mm-hmm. orientation, then eh. yeah. Yeah, nah. that's the undergirding tension in a lot of these. Yeah. All right, this is point 12. We believe the practice of the golden rule, treating others as we would wish to be treated, can effectively guide our social and business relationships. We seek to cultivate the mind of Christ and a heart for others. We have two citations here. Matthew seven twelve says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's, of course, Jesus' words. And then in Romans 12, 1 through 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So is that the golden rule? I mean, all all I take this really to say is that we as believers need to live out the golden rule in our lives, which is not a problem theologically, I don't think. No. I see this as pointing toward... um, you know, like you could think of it in terms of like realms, you know, so so far I think we've often, you and I have often talked in terms of either the realm of the church mm-hmm. or the realm of governance, you yeah. know, p- politics. This one could be seeking to incorporate the realm of, of the marketplace. You got a lot of people in, you know, I know people at Asbury who, who are all about being Christians in the marketplace and what that looks like. Okay. Um, and so I can I can see them reading this or, you know, giving input and saying, you guys need to have something about us being Christians in the marketplace. We're not like, you know, um, soul-dead capitalists who are just getting, you know, all the wealth we can at whatever, you know, we are called to, if we're building wealth, to do so in ways that are, are Christian and, you know, confined by the golden rule. Um, I, you know, and we've talked... I didn't in, even think about that while reading this. Okay. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to... Uh, understand, you know, the business relationships part. The social one, we have been discussing social issues, um, but yeah, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to be saying too much. It's it's leaving it rather 
broad and vague. Um, well, and I like the Romans 12 uh, notion that we shouldn't be conformed to this, this, this world. We need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And then the inference from that being that this world, everybody is trained to be selfish, and our job is not to be. It's to mm-hmm. treat others how we want to be treated, to pour ourselves mm-hmm. out for them, which yeah. is connected to a lot of what we were talking about before. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anything else to be said on this one? Nah. All right. So now we're at point 13, and I believe it's your turn. We believe that each person should have the right to exercise their religious beliefs without fear of persecution, and that government should respect freedom of religion and the important role of faith communities within the greater society. We further denounce discrimination or persecution which may target any because of their gender, economic status, ethnic or tribal identity, age, or political views. From Isaiah 1, verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall, pers- who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Um, was there any other scriptures on this? Mm. Nope. No. Yeah. Um, in terms of the scriptures, uh, do they relate well? Um, well, so the first part is religious freedom, mm-hmm. and the second part is we don't like any leg- worldly legislation that discriminates against people based on yeah. inalienable characteristics. Yeah, I think it's overall kind of the umbrella is persecution. Persecution religious, and then persecution because of gender, economic status, or whatever. I almost wonder if this should have been combined with the previous one before about the golden rule, because the, the, the foundational basis for this is not, hey, we think all religions are good. It's we want to treat others the way that we want to be treated, right, and sure. we don't want to be discriminated against, so we won't discriminate against yeah. others. Um, I, in that sense, it makes—but as I read through this the first time, I was thinking of John MacArthur a couple years ago commenting and saying, no, I'm not for religious freedom. Why on earth would I want to make room for people worshiping demons? Mm-hmm. That's not loving. Mm-hmm. But that, of course, leads in a Christian nationalist direction. Right. So is, is the Methodist—yeah, as, as people, as we're reading through this, these are the social witness stances of the GMC. So in order to be a global Methodist, should people be in favor of religious freedom? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, if—well, and if we're speaking about the whole global Methodist church and you're not thinking only as an American. Oh, yes, this might be ethnocentric. <laughs> well— America-centric. Hmm. The, the latter part of the statement uh, of dis- discrimination or persecution based on those things? Or, or no, I mean, uh, religious freedom is a distinctly Western and particularly American value. I mean, that's mm. what we were built on. So to assume or mandate that other global Methodists around the world would share that value as opposed to, hey, if they are in a Christian nation that— are they supposed to advocate against their Christian nation that gives preferential status to Christianity? Once upon a time, America gave preferential status to the church as a unique role in society. Well, I think <clears throat> if this is all about persecution, I mean, it is about a right—it's it's, it's a, the right to exercise the religious beliefs 
without fear of persecution. So it's not just a, a general statement about religious freedom. Okay. It's religious freedom without persecution. So I would think that even if religious freedom might be a more American context or Western context kind of thing, I would think it a, a universal thing that just about any Christian anywhere can affirm that we we don't want to be persecuted. And similarly, we don't want to persecute anybody else on the basis of what they believe or, or really any of these other things, I would hope. So yeah, I'm not a big fan. I don't I don't really want to persecute anybody. Yeah, no, me neither. I I, I would like it if they would all serve and worship Jesus, but I guess I'm very pessimistic about compelling people, coercing people to serve Jesus. Right, right. So I, I think I think people around the world, I would hope, would be able to read that and be like, yeah, we we don't think anybody should be persecuted for anything that they can't change, you know, uh, that, that that's that's built into how humans are created and for anything that they, they choose to believe. I don't know. I mean, I think that, I don't know. I, I think I could tease out some complications, yeah, but. Whatever. Yeah, we don't have to do that now. Yeah, this is this is yeah this is a good one. Um, mm-hmm. the the final one is is point fourteen, and your turn. Is it okay? This is the last one, folks. We believe in the final triumph of righteousness when the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of Christ, and we accept our calling to work towards that end as Christ's light and the salt of the earth. Before we get to the mm. proof, the scriptures. I hate this one. <laughs> yeah, tell me about Do it. Do you like this one? I'm trying to decide, but I think I know I can anticipate why you hate it. But go ahead. It's all over the New Testament. Christ is going to come again in glory. Mm-hmm. This was my concern as I read through the doctrine. Did you see the thing I put out last week going through the doctrinal part no, before this? There's nothing that explicitly refers to the second coming of Christ, the parousia at all. Mm-hmm. But there is this language of, Kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom. How is, how is it going to become the kingdom of Christ? Uh-huh. We shall accept our calling to work towards that end. As I think that this is written by people who think we are going to build the kingdom. Mm-hmm. It's not that Christ is going to come with a hostile military takeover, with mm-hmm. the sword in his mouth, riding a white horse, with the angels, the heavenly host, and the saints in glory. None of that. This language is for people that are modernist, and they want to think that we can build the kingdom here on earth through our way of life. Well, I'm trying to remember. I'm going to embarrass myself. Uh, perhaps a slightly more gracious interpretation would be that they're not necessarily modernists. They might be, which one is it? Is it post-millennialists? I think it's amillennialists. Yeah, I always get confused. They pronounce it amillennialists. Yeah, excuse me. Um, there is this notion within certain camps of, of Christian eschatology of... Um, yeah, we believe that the kingdom is already here or um, that the millennial reign is already here or has already come, mm-hmm. and that now our business is to make our our worldly kingdoms reflect the 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 kingdom that is already or has already been. Um, so you can't be a global Methodist unless you are an amillennial <laughs> believer. It, they do seem to be preferencing a certain language that suggests uh, n- not all the options on the table for eschatology and, and not a pretty, you know, a premillennial view. Um, 
I don't, I don't actually invest a whole lot in those different categories. So I don't care to like place myself. The, the main point is I agree with you. Yes. I, I don't like this becoming the kingdom of Christ. Nah, the, the kingdom of Christ is ultimately alien to us. Yeah. And we are aliens on this earth. And so, yes, yes scripture has plenty of mixed language and yes, we are. I, I don't think you can like clearly delineate and say, no, there's no, it's not like we've forsaken this world, you know? Uh, you and I, I think, would both say we're supposed to be salt and light. Yeah, we're supposed to have a positive, beneficial effect on whatever systems we're placed in. Mm -hmm. But uh, to then confuse that with us somehow being able to participate in our kingdom, worldly kingdom, becoming the heavenly kingdom mm -hmm. is confused beyond belief. And I just, I want to stand up for a literal understanding of Christ's return. Mm -hmm. People mock this stuff, and I just think the global Methodist church fine if we want to acknowledge, hey, there's texture in Scripture, and there are different ways of understanding, but the moment that we become uncomfortable with Christ Jesus returning in glory and us rising in the air to meet Him, mm -hmm. I mean, I, it feels to me like whoever wrote this really gets away from this, but I'm going to step back from that now, mm -hmm. and I spoke to the people who wrote this. I don't know who created this section, mm -hmm. but whoever put the scriptural citations in here does deal with literal second coming Christ. So here, here's mm -hmm. the scriptural citations. You are the salt of the earth. Oh, okay, yeah, you're, you're citing, you already cited mm -hmm. this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So I would just say to that one, there's a far cry between being a preservative and actually saving the world. Mm -hmm. There's a far cry between being light and shining light and saving the world and, and building the kingdom. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's against this notion of building the kingdom that I'm about. Um, Revelation 11, 15 through 17. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. You know, I was happy with them for putting this in here, and now I'm not happy because they've skipped over all the violent overthrow and all that's left is the world has become the mm -hmm. kingdom of God. Well, how did it become? Well, Christ showed up on a white horse. That's how. Mm -hmm. And then the last bit, they just say, read Revelation 21 and 22. But that similarly is after all of the hostile takeovers. So mm -hmm. the, the problem I have here, if it's not clear to any viewers, is Daniel already said it. This world is not the kingdom of God. Yes, Christ said the kingdom is among us and within us, but not in its fullness. And the fullness of it does not just gradually come. And one day we look at it and it's here. Rather, Jesus said, it'd be like a lightning flash from one end of the sky to the Everybody's going to see it. The sky is going to be rolled back like a scroll. Nobody's going to be able to deny it. And it's not like we're going to look around and everybody's just going to be saved. Rather, we're going to look around and there's going to be some people gone. You know, mm -hmm. We're going to look around and there's a lake of fire where there's uh, not just the beast, and Satan, but also a lot of people here and now. And so that's what's on the line here. I just I feel like this language 
just takes away so much of the heat and the the importance of everyday living, and it just gives us this uh, banal sense of it, it's all going to be okay. So that's that's my <clears throat> critique here. Do you have anything to add to that? Well, two like kind of steel man efforts here. Uh, one would be that maybe we could interpret. So so there is the first of all, I agree with everything you said, but um, there's the kind of a maybe kind of more extreme understanding of what it means to become our kingdoms becoming the kingdom of God mm -hmm. that's like yeah they're just going to gradually approach like you just described um I think maybe some of what could be driving this is kind of a world affirming stance and that um a, a kind of self-corrective that's happened within evangelicalism is that in an effort to maintain certain Christian doctrines about total depravity and certain things, Evangelicals and conservatives have often painted the world in such broadly negative and overwhelmingly negative terms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've done that. Right. I stand by that. <laughs> well, and I think there's an effort, some of which I think I'm sympathetic to, uh, to say that not, I mean, you know, we've talked about this in the past in terms of language of like, is it all going to burn? You know, like this, this, this heaven and this earth are gonna burn away, and yeah. there's not gonna be a certain uh, a shred. It's all left gonna burn. It. It's and, that's what it says, right? Which many evangelicals would not agree. And you know, it's like if you, if you, I don't know if you remember. I know that Jeffrey and I have uh, watched the Bible Project for years, um, and that we ha we like a lot of it. And there's some things we don't like. Sure. But there was a video that one of their first videos, I think they did. I don't know if it was the image of God or, but it kind of depicts you know, like how some of the science and technologies we come up with is horrible and destructive, but some of it is good. It's medicine, and it shows, like, the good aspects of society and culture mm -hmm. that uh, they then, I believe, present in that video is, like, continuing on the new creation. Like, mm -hmm. we are co-creators with God, co-workers with God, and those things which are good and fit in with God's mission and, and plan uh, are, are are not just tainted in, inevitably and unavoidably because they're in this evil world. Like, no, mm -hmm. that's a part of God's good creation and will continue on. So I, I do think that there is biblical room to, to have the argument about whether or not it's all going to burn or uh, whether the things are going to be burnt. You know, if, if the language of burning is also to, meant to talk about purification of metals, then everything that is evil and wicked will be removed, but that which is good and righteous and pure will remain. Um, and so I think this can be trying to be a, like a world affirming thing of like, uh, not world in the evil sense, but world no, no, in no. the like created goodness of God sense of, um, that there will be aspects of culture and language and current realities yeah. that there will be continuity with that in the new, uh, in the, well, new creation is already in the, in the kingdom. Yeah. So some of this, I also feel like might be, um, a reaction to a, a lot of, Current, modern day evangelicals see themselves on the other side of the modernist fundamentalist controversy. Right. Yeah. Which you know where we started out with the social gospel, um, the way that that controversy is often depicted is modernists were all about you know modernism progression. We're improving. Things are going to get better, mm -hmm. and uh, so focused on the social justice aspect of things that they neglected the gospel aspect of things, and yeah. so. Then you have the fundamentalists who so focus on the gospel aspect of things to the neglect of social transformation and caring about this world. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all about the next world to come. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of evangelicals would come to this like enlightened kind of posture of that was a silly fight back then. And we think that you can do both. And there's some aspects of social justice that we wouldn't claim because that's a part of 
a leftist worldview that we don't, but we believe we're here to transform the world. We're here to, we're here to make it better, uh, to be salt and light. And we think we can say that with one hand and with the other also say all the good things about the gospel and be totally in line with the orthodox traditions of, of the church. Um, so so I, I kind of feel like that's the worldview we're dealing with here is one that's very much trying to affirm and keep what we can mm -hmm. and, and say, yeah, we care about the social conditions of our world and transforming it, and we think that that will have continuity with the coming kingdom. And so if you're being as gracious as possible, I think that, that but, but you yeah, might not I care about any of that. I, I mean, I do care about being gracious. And I, you know, if anybody's watching this who is part of it and uh, you feel like I'm being really unfair, I will, I will do an interview with you. I will platform you. I will let you advocate. Um, Daniel, I appreciate you steel manning it. The problem I have is, is uh, I feel like what has been presented so far in the two segments I've done is an unbalanced uh, eschatology, and I want for there to be, you know, as they're signaling, hey, people concerned about the earth have a place here. People concerned about immigration have a place here. I would like for them to signal, hey, you fundies are welcome here too. Mm -hmm. And I'm worried that this, this um, kind of enlightened mentality you talk about in evangelicals that, oh, we can synthesize these things and we don't need these extremes over here. Uh, uh, the, this demographic was already excluded from the UMC. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily know that we want to skimp on the language that lets them know they have a place in the GMC. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if we want to do it at the entry point to the denomination. You know, if these are the 14 social witness things that really everybody needs to agree with to come on board, do you think it would be right for uh, people that are something akin to scriptural literalists to look at this and go, oh, I'm, I'm not sure I do have a place with the global Methodists. Mm. Well, I think you're right to lift up that these these two sections of the discipline, a book of doctrines and disciplines, is expected to, you know, church is supposed to sign on to this. Uh, a question hanging in my mind is whether or not the leadership of the GMC, the people who authored this, really do intend it to be a strictly a, a standard of the identity as I think you and I, you know, you and I take these kinds of things extremely seriously. Mm -hmm. If that's going to be on paper, then I'm going to take it seriously and I'm going to really try and abide by it. Um, it's about integrity. And while I don't think the GMC is interested in integrity—they uh, uh, are interested in integrity—I yeah. uh, think, I, I wonder if they would kind of be like, oh, you're reading this a little too strictly. And I could be wrong, but I, I think that they might just say like, Hey man, loosen up a little bit. Like, yeah, there's room for you here. And uh, this isn't a confessional statement like the Westminster, you know, confession. This is, uh, yes, it's it's something that your church needs to be broadly on board with, and and like you know, like ninety five percent okay with. But there's a, if there's a little thing here or there, we all acknowledge that this discipline isn't going to be one hundred percent exactly what everybody wants. Yeah, you know, but you need no, to be okay with be? the spirit and the and the the overwhelming majority of it. Yeah, yeah, it, and I don't want to be ungracious or unnecessary. You know, I don't want to be getting triggered by everything. Uh, you, I guess you can tell that this is one of my bailiwicks, that I, I really, if people are not comfortable with literal second coming language, then I get skittish, and yeah. I wonder if we really are Rightly. brothers in Christ. But I also think it bears 
uh, I don't think I've said it yet, but I mean, this is a transitional book of doctrines and discipline. It was an ad hoc document put together mm -hmm. by an ad hoc committee. Um, it is not the representation of the GMC as it will be after the convening conference mm -hmm. next year. And so, you know, I, I wonder if it might be worthy of having this conversation that we're having right now and then leading to augmenting some of this language to be much more explicit about the otherworldly nature. I mean, they, they, they had some stuff in here about the nature of the next world being different from this world. So I guess I'm just picking on the nature of the transition mm -hmm. and how much we facilitate that yeah. or uh, coalesce with that. So I, I hope it's a welcome conversation. I know, I mean, I have so many people write me who have the same biblical worldview that I do. And the concern I have was a lot of people in the United Methodist Church, they, they were given, you know, just little morsels, uh, little, little crumbs with spiritual sounding language so that they felt like it was the same and they didn't realize they didn't have that discernment to go, no, 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 they mean very different things when they say this mm -hmm. and they're participating in, in something very different. So I just wanna make sure that I understand the document and what it points to and then who, who is in charge and what their theology is and how, how big the tent actually is. Mm -hmm. are, is there room for people like me and you or are we going to be kind of thorns in the side of people who want the GMC to still be respectable in some of the same ways as the UMC? And there's no way to say that right now. I mean, this is what I'm sussing out through having these film conversations and stuff. But if anything, I mean, this is, this is just a, a, a timestamp of how the, the, the early rough draft document impacts two hicks from Oklahoma. So, uh, you know, we're both newly ordained, serving two small rural churches, you know, four total between us. Um, why should anyone care about what we think? But um, this, this is just a sampling, a representative sampling of how sure. it is that, that people like you reflect on this stuff. Just zooming out, is there anything to be said about the entire social witness document that you think would be good to close this out? I think I kind of, my last remarks were along those lines. Um, and I think I might just, um, in response to you, uh, say, I do think that the GMC has to wrestle, wrestle with, um, yeah, w w what do we want to do about the fundamentalists in our midst? Yeah. I do think that that's a question that they're struggling with. And we see it in the legacy of people like Billy Abraham, who only, as far as I ever read, had negative things to say about fundamentalists. And I just think, and, and he's not, you know, universally uh, influential on the whole, anybody who's coming to the GMC, but I think he's a representative sample of like, I think evangelicalism has largely rebuked fundamentalism. Mm. And I and I think this this document has tried to be amenable, but, but I, I think you're right to kind of wonder if you're welcomed. Um, I do have one other thought that's on my mind. Do it. Um, I wonder if someone, like I'm imagining like an Orthodox or a Catholic watching this conversation, which I doubt they would, but... No, there, there are actually lots of Roman Catholics that watch this, and they cool. love commenting and saying, the one true church isn't <laughs> Right. Well, I'm imagining them listening to our conversation and hearing the language of like, is there room for me in this church? Mm -hmm. And the one corrective I've loved every time I'm listening to Roman Catholics is like, wrong question, man. The, the question is not whether or not there's room for you. Uh, if there's if you've got beliefs that don't fit in, fit in, get rid of the beliefs, conform, be a part of the church. 
you know, we're not the Roman Catholic Church. We don't have the magisterium, nor do we have any of their ecclesiology that demands that kind of conformity. Mm -hmm. But but I think that's a really fascinating aspect of what we're doing as a GMC, is by nature of writing a document like this, you are expecting a level of conformity. Mm -hmm. And if you come at it with this Protestant mindset of like, I'll take what I can and what I, what I can, I'll, I'll, I'm not, you know, that's not mine. I'm, a, I'm in a grocery store and I'm shopping for what I want theologically. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And either I'm shopping for the denomination I want or within the denomination, I'll take what I can take and what I can't, I'm not going to preach, you know, this kind of, uh, uh-huh. that, that like there's, I think there's a fair critique from outside of our Protestant mindsets that says, do you see the, the, the cycle you're trapped in? Like, on the one hand, you want conformity yeah. to a certain set of beliefs, yeah. but on the other hand, you keep on asking yourself, can I fit in yeah. because I'm not coming in unless I can have all my beliefs, and is this tent going to be big enough? And it's kind of like, how do, how do you get out of your uh, out of the, your Protestant cycle You know, where you're wanting to have standards, but at the same time, nobody's ever going to fully fit into your standards mm. within the ecclesiology that you have? That's a good word, and I don't have a simple answer for it which means that you're of the devil. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I... Uh, it obviously can't go too far to either extreme. There's got to be a dance between two extremes there and how we navigate that dance. What I understand myself in this channel to be doing is facilitating a conversation that does lead in a direction that coalesces around a shared identity around. Mm-hmm. You know, the UMC spread out too far. Mm-hmm. Um I, I think there has to be some centrifugal and some centripetal forces at play. And I think you have to have a centered understanding of the church and a bounded vision mm-hmm. of the both and, you know. So I, I do think we have to fi- fill out what extremes are permissible within the understanding that this is mm-hmm. uh, an, uh, another mental image would be concentric circles. But Yes, the, the individual set of beliefs are negotiable, and people mm-hmm. do change their mind over time uh, when enlightened by God, and I would like to think that that can still happen with me. But even so, there are certain base-level convictions, and I, I just wonder if when they were crafting this, they did so with the understanding that it would exclude some people that would otherwise fit in the GMC, and that they took it for granted that they would have that kind of shopper mentality when that's not necessarily a mentality that's that's helped us. So I'm of the mind that we shouldn't put anything on paper that we are willing, uh, unless mm-hmm. we're willing to divide on it. And if we're not willing to divide, then it probably shouldn't be there, even yeah. if it's aspirational in nature. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's helpful. Yeah. Are you of the same mind? I, I don't have a good, clear answer on this, because I'm kind of sympathetic. On the one hand, there's a part of me that kind of says like, Let's get a confessional document, spell it out, make it really clear, and the lines are drawn super yeah. clear. And if you're not on board, sure, don't get on board. Get yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, start. We we don't want to get confused about this and have the same kind of messy situation later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I find myself pretty sympathetic to kind of almost the opposite side of things that I heard from really strongly from Billy Abraham, who said he he was really coming from an Orthodox kind of point of view, <clears throat> Eastern Orthodox, saying. It is an endless cycle that the Protestants are stuck in. You guys can't get out of it because you're you can always draw the line somewhere else, and someone you know you're you're always going to find people in your camp that you don't want in there, um, and and you're going to find you're going to get stuck in this like increasing need to clarify further and further and further, which is going to cause more and more division. Whatever, I'm I'm kind of filling 
words into Billy Abraham's mind. His approach was almost in the opposite direction of saying, don't nail it all down. Mm -hmm. um, what is nailed down is the Nicene Creed and, and the canon of Scripture. Mm -hmm. um, let's embrace what he called, you know, the canonical traditions of the church. Let's have the saints and, and doctors of the church and theologians that the church has recognized as being orthodox from the beginning. Let's have the liturgies, and let's have this whole host of material that is all, like, mutually— um, it's kind of like, as, as opposed to like a bare bones, super clear and concise approach that draws the lines really clearly, mm -hmm. it's a, this is what the majority of Christians have embraced across time and space. Mm. Let's let that, we, we, we trust that there's coherence and that there are outer boundaries to that. It's not all wild west and craziness, but the more defined you make it, the more specific you make it, the more you set yourself up, not only for future division, but you, you, too easily pigeonholed your, yourself. They tried to find specific language here, and they ended up pigeonholing themselves into a specific eschatology. Mm -hmm. There's some wisdom in leaving some things broad and saying like, hey, on eschatology, there's room for a few different interpretations here, and mm -hmm. it's unwise to nail it down too distinctly. Or, hey, uh, on atonement, there are a number of very good understandings, scriptural understandings of how we can look at the atonement. We don't need to settle on one and make that the bar for everybody. If mm -hmm. you're, you know, you need to be able to embrace the host. We find penal substitutionary atonement and this, you know, moral exemplar, and we find the various atonement frameworks mm -hmm. present throughout church history and in scripture. You need to be able to embrace the host of them, not, you know, let's nail down the one that's going to be the test for everybody. Yeah. You know, I, I think I'm. Well, I, I don't think wide. you're arguing with me. I think you're saying the same thing, which is don't put it on paper unless. Well, except so there is the consensual tradition of things put on paper that you have to work to fit together, but mm -hmm. they can. And then how much more are we going to add to complicate the mix? And I mm -hmm. guess I would just say, especially with the social stuff, um, unless you're willing to kick people out based on it. Well, I guess in this situation, it's you're willing to hold them at the door and say, unless they're willing to adopt these things, they really shouldn't come in. That's what's going on with the church. Or, you know, yeah, or I would imagine they, they do have the the structure in the book that if a church were acting in a way that was counter to these, they could decide to remove the church from the denomination. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. But I think that there was even uh, a, in a, a publication that came out a few years called The Next Methodism. I didn't read the whole thing. I read about, I think, half of it. But a friend told me there was even a chapter written in there that was arguing that uh, the next form of Methodism should have its own version of the magisterium. I think that's another impulse is to say we need Methodist to have crypto Catholics yeah. in our midst. I will purge you. <laughs> I'm yeah. joking. I'm not going to purge you. But there's there's some people that want us to be able to give a statement on whatever is necessary to give a statement on, and then to kind of expect people to be on board. Dude, that's the Council of Bishops. That's a, that's essentially the role that the United Methodist Council of Bishops has has increasingly fulfilled. Right, and then the the question is whether or not. The problem of of that was the definition and the that they could do that at all, or if it was just kind of a runaway train that didn't have proper checks and balances. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, we're we figured out almost everything. Yep. We we got ninety nine percent of the way there. Two hour but, long program. Oh we my did. Gosh. <laughs> I'm thinking. Well, anyway, if you stuck with us the whole time, I I would imagine there were pause, play, pause, play over three days. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you have thoughts on the, the social witness of the Global Methodist Church, they're very welcome in the comments. You can write me privately at plainspokenpod at gmail.com. Um, if, if you 
think it's good for me to be fostering these kind of conversations. It's good for the GMC and the UMC and Wesleyanism and Christianity. I'm trying to help all of these. Then uh, go over to locals.com and find my channel and become a supporter. This this stuff costs money and time and energy, and my church is is supporting this, hoping that it is helpful to you. So um, hopefully we can have a symbiotic relationship with the larger connections. So thanks to my brother Daniel for joining me today. And me uh, you know, if you can't tell, we've we've talked a lot for many years about these most meaningful things. We're just picking up where we left off each time. So uh, thanks to you for engaging in the conversation, and I'll see you next time.